Hey, this is Psychotronicast. My name is Alec Berg, and the talent is Derek Estes. Um, we're working on getting on Spotify, so that's going to be coming soon. I have a good feeling about that. But otherwise, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Last FM, our website, psychotronicast.com, and uh, other shit I'm sure of that I haven't heard of yet. Well, uh, without further ado, it's time for another series. So, Derek, what the hell are you getting us into? All right. Well, uh, so for part two of our Yuppie Nightmares uh, movies, uh, like we said in the last one, the second movie is Something Wild uh, by Jonathan Demme from 1986 uh, with Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels. And um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I love this movie, so I've been I'm excited to talk about it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, how should we begin? Do you any thoughts? Thoughts, prayers that. Um... Yeah, this is the second time I've seen it, and the first time I saw it was with you in your apartment, and I'd never even heard of it, and I think everybody has heard of Jonathan Demme, whether you'd seen Silence of the Lambs or you're a fan of the Talking Heads, and he created one of the greatest like concerts ever, like put on film with uh, yeah, Stop absolutely. Making Sense, and he's done like a handful of other things, Married to the Mob. Well, he's done a bunch of stuff, actually, but um, yeah, some of it's good, some of it's bad, but he was really in the sweet spot in this period from, like, the 80s. He was just killing it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when I saw it the first time, I loved it. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it um, for so many reasons, which we'll slowly get into. And, yeah, I, I know it's a cult classic now, but it's weird that this movie isn't I, I, it's weird it hasn't like came under my radar until we watched it recently. I'm like, how did yeah, I, how did this just like go over my head or whatever? I feel like uh, this is a gem that people should check out. What about you? When was the first time you seen this? Well, I hadn't actually seen it until it was when the Criterion came out. Uh, so that would have been like around 2011. And uh, I mean, I I watched it mostly because of Jonathan Demme. Like, I really liked his movies quite a bit, and. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I liked, you know, Jeff Daniels, and I, I really wasn't a big fan of Melanie Griffith. Uh, I, there's, you know, a few things she'd done here and there, but, you know, she wasn't really a draw, necessarily. But once I saw this movie, everything just fell into place, and uh, and it's funny, because I've watched it now several times, uh, and even, you know, like, I watched it with you, and then, yeah, just watching it again uh, last night for the podcast. Um, and I think it's a movie that actually like gets better for me. Like, uh, you know, every time I see it, there's just something new that I discover. Um, and I think, you know, going along with this theme, uh, I don't know. I, I just think it's, it really pairs well with, uh, as a kind of a counter movie or a companion movie to desperately seeking Susan, uh, as far as, you know, it, uh, it has that kind of like romantic comedy like feeling to it. And it's kind of like a bringing up baby sort of, you know, has this kind of screwball elements to it. But, um, you know, it also has such a crazy shift in tone, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later, but this movie has just like, there's so much in the actual direction of this movie that I think is, uh, so exciting and really makes it like come and pop. Uh, part of that being the music, that Jonathan Demme has, and obviously he has a really good flair for that. He just had made uh, Stop Making Sense. And he really seemed to kind of get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, just like cool music in general. I think he, he just understood it and just knew how to plug it in. I mean, all of his movies, even, you know, like Silence of the Lambs, you know, obviously, you know, has like 
really great uh, bits of music in Rachel at the Wedding, like one of his last movies uh, that I'd seen. Like, you know, there's just like so many like great musicians in there and just like great music happening, even though it's not necessarily a, a plot point. Um, and just the way that he like, you know, uses people and characters. This, this movie is completely full, besides just the characters, the main characters. Um, like every person in this movie is a character, even if it's somebody like an extra, like nobody's just an extra in this movie. No. Um, and there's a lot of those things that just kind of make this just, I don't know, such a joy to watch. Yeah. And yeah, we'll get to all the little people and nuances of the film pretty soon, but with something wild, uh, you created this series partially because my wife is like 10 days away from having a baby, less or more or less. So it was like, and I have no time on my hands to just do stuff by myself. So I would like her involved. So you created this series basically to be like, here's something even your wife would enjoy. And after... Well, partly, I mean, some of these things I, I had wanted to do for a while, but this was actually because of that, it was the perfect time to do it right now. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. But... I asked her after the movie was over and the credits were rolling and uh, that chick was doing like the the Jamaican version of Wild Thing with like some mm-hmm. rap over it, which is such a cool way with the credits to roll like to the side of her. What a great way to end the movie. I was like, so what'd you think? She's like, oh, it's pretty good. And I was like, would you like better this or Desperately Seeking Susan? She's like, well, what was with the music in this movie? <laughs> like that was the that was the one thing she was like, "What? Why is there like reggae?" And like all, I'm like, "Oh, that's funny." It's like that's usually everybody says that's his strong suit, but you're just like, "Nope." <laughs> so she just, so I guess she couldn't get over the music from the film. And I'm like, "There is so many. What about the band at the high school reunion? That was great, but now." Nah. Oh, yeah. Especially when they play David Bowie's fame, you're just like... Oh, yeah. And it's, it's shitty, but it's great. Uh, well, it's like also it's the Feelies, and I love them so much. They do play a couple of their songs kind of in, in between, but they do like all those covers. Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, like, yeah, that's... Yeah, it's a band I totally love. But, I mean, if you're not into that scene, and obviously the reggae thing could definitely be, uh, you know, a deal breaker. But for me, I think it's just like all the choices he picks and the way they're used um, uh-huh. just fit so well in this movie. Well, so, yeah, yeah, I can totally even, see that. Even like wild, like wild Thing has like been beaten to death throughout pop culture, mm-hmm. but he somehow makes it like cool again in this movie. Yeah. And I agree. With the, I mean, I love, I do love the Trogs, but that song is like that one that normally, like even if you were listening to like a compilation, I'd most likely skip just cause I'm like, I don't need to hear wild thing again. Yeah. But I do like it. It's kind of like Louie Louie, where you're like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. with the feelies, I wasn't really aware of them, and apparently it's one of Jonathan Demme's favorite bands. And they made two albums in the 80s, in 1980 and then in 1986, and then they took a 30-year hiatus or whatever, and they just released a new album a couple years ago. Yeah. So, so they're, they're back at it again, hitting the road. So maybe they'll come through Portland and we'll go see the feelies. Oh, I would love to. I think they're so great. And they sound like their their music is still pretty consistent. I mean, it it doesn't really sound like it to feel like a thirty year break. Um, but especially those early couple albums, like Crazy Rhythms in particular, is just for me a classic. I I'm totally definitely gonna listen great. to them. I that's another band. I mean, there's a lot of bands from the '80s that I just were like, oh, um, didn't 
have a chance to check out, but now I will. Uh, we should also even s- like the opening credits with you know you have uh, David Byrne. Oh, exactly. Uh, and Celia Cruz, like you know, coming right off of Stop Making Sense, and then you have you know his uh, you know rendition or you know of a Wild Thing song. You know, it's not the actual Trogs version, but uh, you know, it just it it sets the tone. Yeah. And we should also say this movie is sponsored by Seagram Seven. Hey, no, I don't know. I know why. they referred to it as Scotch at one point. It's like it's not Scotch. Exactly, I was going to mention that. Like when she goes to the liquor store and talking about Scotch, I'm like, Seagram's isn't Scotch, you weirdo. <laughs> I was like, that's like their J and B for the Jalo. Exactly. Where you're just like, what's with everybody? I was going to say the same thing. It's like they only had it's totally the J and B. Yeah, they only had like one breath size breath size bottle that they had as a prop. So they're like, we'll just use it in every scene. That's what everyone drinks. <laughs> no, and she only buys it by the pint. I know. Can I have four pints? Can I have four (laughs) pints? It's like you know, there's fifths, right, and half gallons. Like that was that was a thing back then. Um, Just those flasks. Just the flasks. So we meet Jeff Daniels in in the the setting, the extras, everything. What we were mentioning earlier with um, uh, uh, Jonathan Demi, he really doesn't waste any space or person. That that little like uh, deli or whatever you want to call it that they're eating in that little cafe looks awesome. It looks like it's oh, in yeah. like two like just fat Italians that look like they spent their whole life in Bensonhurst with the like they're all sweaty with their like ringed out t shirts like just talking whatever and just oh, yeah. every walk of life eating from a businessman to a Melanie Griffith to whoever else and he dines in ditches so yeah. Which is like a really like the most unsympathetic thing he does in the entire movie, I think. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Being in the service industry, you're just like, what, man? Like, don't. It's funny, that diner, I looked at it on Google Maps, and I don't know how recently the Google Maps had um, updated it, but it's on 6th and Watts, and like kind of over in Soho. And it's, there is some sort of uh, diner there called, uh, it was, uh, guys, now I can't remember. It was. You know, like a looked like a Latin restaurant of some sort. Uh, it was like somebody's name, whatever. Now I can't remember. I should have taken notes, but it it was still functioning as a as a cafe. So oh, that's rad. I'd love to go there. And you mentioned that the first time that we saw this movie together is Jeff Daniels. I mean, he's now we know he's such a great actor. He's currently on Broadway doing um, was it of Mice and Men or something like that? Just like he brought oh, nice. it back, and it's like. This crate, like everyone's going nuts for it. He's always been like great on the stage and doing the stuff with Dumb and Dumber. Obviously, that's a classic, but uh, doing something with um, Homeboy Aaron Sorkin for HBO as recent as like a couple of years ago with the newsroom. They did like a whole bunch of seasons of that. So we all know uh, Jeff Daniels as being somebody that you can trust. And he really wasn't like much of a name at this point. I think the biggest thing he'd done before is he'd been in uh, Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo. And I think that's how he got this part. Cause I think originally they were thinking of Evan Klein uh, for his part, which but he would have been good in this. I don't know too. what fell apart. Say what? I think he would have been good in that too. Cause he, he was yeah the fish called Wanda. Like he's so dynamite in that movie. Um, and that yeah, was Kevin Klein would have done it really well. Like cause he's just like he has that little like sparkle in his eye. I think it really works. But I do think that in a weird way, Jeff Daniels can play both parts so convincingly, where you can totally see him as um, as the square 
And I think with Kevin Klein, to a certain degree, it would almost be harder to see him. He's so like outwardly charismatic, you know, for me at least. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, seeing him as just like the total square. You know, I think Jeff Daniels, you can see that, but you can see him kind of loosening up and the dorkiness. Mm hmm. And he, he's got a, a, a better stature, too. I think when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, when he's rolling around with Ray Liotta at the end of the film, it helps that Jeff Daniels kind of, like, towers over him. Because yeah, it's true. Ray Liotta's so fucking nuts in this movie, and he's done time and all that stuff, that he's scary enough on his own. But, like, I feel like if it's Kevin Klein, I don't know how tall he is, but I know he's not. So just seeing yeah. those two battle it out, it's like this pipsqueak would never win in a battle, no matter what. It's like at least Jeff Daniels has some, like... It looks like he at least like row crude or played volleyball or something. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. But that was the thing about this film is the first thing you see him do is you see this like business guy in a suit, ditch his bill, and then you know you think he has like a wife and kids at home, and then you're still like completely on board, like fuck yeah, throw it all away, man. I'm rooting for you. Like that's the power of Jeff Daniels' performance in this flick. It can't be overstated enough. Like he's the oh, reason yeah that this movie keeps working or else if you're not, if you're not in on him and if you're rooting against him at any point in this movie, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Cause you're like, fuck this guy. It's Why true. are we even doing this? Like whatever. Like, and with Melanie Griffith too, which is insane because I'm feel the same way about Melanie Griffith as you do. But then I started to think like, wait a second, she's made some really awesome and interesting choices. Like one of my favorite Gene yeah. Hackman movies that's overlooked. It's one of her first night moves. She's like, Kind of like a Jodie Foster role, like you would see in um, Taxi Driver, like super young. She's not a prostitute, mm -hmm. but she plays like a kind of like a hot dog strutting floozy, as one would say. Or as I'm the only one that would say that. She liked to sleep around, and she liked to sleep it, around with well, older men. And, it's funny. Uh, I always think of her part in Night uh, Night Moves to be kind of like the uh, the Carrie Fisher part in Shampoo, <laughs> where they're both you're both like what? There's in this movie they're so young, and they just are like these slutty teenagers. Yeah, so you have that, and then of course, like we've covered this, the classic roar, which you're roar. like, roar, and then <laughs> you have, yeah, you have something wild, and then like you know, a decade or so later, you have Cecil be demented. You're oh like, yeah, that one's great too. And then I think she got this because she had just done Brian De Palma's uh, Body Double, um, and it's funny because that movie was a movie that when I first saw, I just hated. And then um, going back and rewatching it within the past year, um, I, I enjoyed it so much more. But yeah, I, I used to hate that movie. But she had just done that, and she really got noticed. Uh, and they were like, hey, we need to plug Melanie Griffiths in this. And this is kind of the beginning of her being like more of a leading actress, not just someone who would pop up here and there. Um, and yeah. to get, you know... Super. And she's so great in this movie, too. I mean, part of this movie... Um, you know, one of the things that I think helps set the, the tone and the style for everything is her wardrobe, um, especially early on, because she has this kind of Louise Brooks, uh, like, wig on. And her, her name in the movie is Lulu. So it's another kind of, like, Louise Brooks reference. And then she's wearing all of this, like, uh, kind of, like, insane ethnic and punk jewelry and this, like, you know, black dress. And everything is just so colorful and just so lively. And I think that spills into the music and the like choice, you know, the, the world music and the reggae and all the, the different, um, you know, just stuff going on. Like this, that like, you know, uh, 
you know, I don't know, just that flavor of the movie. I think a lot of comes out of her costume mm-hmm. and just who she is and what she looks like. I mean, she she confronts him about like stiffing the the waitress, um, and then quickly. I mean, like you know, time you know, she basically kidnaps him. But uh, you know, she's such a dynamic character in this movie. Yeah, and she totally blows you away. And she's not my type when it comes to if we're just talking purely superficial with looks here. Yeah. But she's got to have at least the voice that she uses in this film, like one of the top ten sexiest voices in the history of film. <laughs> like she just has that like breathy but not annoying. Like I'm not even yeah. gonna try and do an impersonation, but you're like within ten minutes, you're like, yeah, I'd go to the moon with you. And you know when they get to the hotel room, she takes it all off, and she's wearing those like high waisted underwear, and you're just like, damn, like it's all. But it's like not my type, but it's like totally, it's all, yeah, she's like selling it in the, the way that it should be sold. I don't know. Well, it's, she's just like, she has this like element of just like gravity to her, where it's yeah. just like you're so attracted to, you know, who she is. I mean, even just like, she just is so exciting, you know? And this is, it's also weird that this movie wasn't a bigger, was, you know, wasn't more popular when it came out, because to me, this seems like just that movie that would launch a star. Uh, because she's just so captivating in this. You're like, yeah, like let's just put her in anything. Um, yeah, I'd watch this over yeah. Pretty Woman any day of the week, or yeah, Can't Buy Me Love, or any of those '80s ones that had this kind of thing going for it, where it's like completely female driven in a man's world, and like you know, like oh, here comes danger, and uh, you know, whatever have you. The yuppie, well, the yuppie crisis. How about yeah, that? Yeah, there it is. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah, I love like how she basically just you know gets him in the car. She throws away his pager, and she just like takes him across the bridge. She's gonna you know she's gonna give him a ride to to work or whatever. Um, but then just she basically just like breaks him down into like you know into subservience, and he's just like really. You know, it's funny that these things that uh, she'll do in, to, with him in this movie where, you know, she terrifies him. But she also kind of, like, builds this ego up a little bit. You know, it's kind of the, like, hey, come on, like, have fun. Like, you know, like, you're a rebel, you know. And then he just kind of plays into that. Uh, you know, he's like, oh, well, yeah, as a matter of fact. And what's this whole thing, like, you know, talking about, like, munis and, you know, the shit that he was like, yeah, I was just, like, really ahead of the wave on, you know, whatever stuff boring ass shit that he does um but then she goes and she like ends up robbing the the liquor store uh while he's like you know on the phone and then that scene i love um just even when he's on the phone just the crazy lady just like sitting and waiting for the phone it's like not like a part or a character but it's just such a i mean it's a character um i don't know i just love that yeah they end up like going to the the motel the other thing about this movie that I really love, and I think kind of helps with uh, the mood, is they're constantly, like this movie, people are constantly in diners, motels, uh, convenience stores, like, you know, restaurants, like through the whole movie. But they're all like, you know, these little mom-pa places and all the different shops and the different convenience stores, they all have this like, this sort of flavor, like nothing seems bland. Like I love, you know, uh, how they end up going to that restaurant, that Italian restaurant. It's like mom and dad, mom and dad's dad speaking. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the, and that guy was like, God, I know that guy. And it's funny. He's actually the producer of the movie. 
But uh, Jonathan Demme's put him in like a bunch of his other movies. Like he's in like Silence of the Lambs, and uh, I think he's in like Married to the Mob and Melvin and Howard. But in uh, Philadelphia, it's yeah. But it's like that kind of element. It's like this road movie for a segment of it, and you're constantly just you know involved in all these little. You know, it, it's like a fantasy vision of, you know, Roadside America, where everything has a little bit of flavor and everything is character. And, uh, you know, there are people like beatboxing at the, the gas station and there's, yeah. you know, like a black church. And there's, you know, like two old hipster lesbians that run a vintage shop. And Oh, by the know, way, the those old, so cool. old vintage hipster lesbians are David Byrne and Jonathan Demme's mothers. Oh, my God. That is so cute. Isn't that awesome? I had no idea, but I love that story. And about all the other characters, one of my favorite characters is the gas station attendant, Nelson, that uh, yes. hooks up uh, Jeff Daniels with dope white pleated short threads and Virginia is for lovers t-shirt and a Confederate flag hat, and he lets him keep, <laughs> keep his sunglasses. That guy looked familiar to me, and I'm like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And I did a little research. It is he stop making sense. Yes. He's the, I did, I did do the same thing. I'm like, who is that guy? He's so familiar. Yeah. He's a sweaty ass guitar slash bongo player. That's, uh, plays the set with David Byrne, the talking heads and stop making sense. I'm like, that is so fucking cool. He's a great, he's great. He's so, he's just, he's as, so great. He's so much like he, he has so much like sunshine in him. Like he's just like that on stage too. Where he's just like, isn't this awesome? Like, this is such a great, like, I know he's just living life to his fullest. He's like, Usually gas station attendants, both in life and on film, are just kind of like dirty and just like drab. And they're just like, oh, you fill her up, all right, right away, like whatever. But this guy's just like, yeah, man, what's up? Yeah, come on, let's do it. Like, he's well, just, even that scene, when, you know, he's just like, oh, the, you know, the glasses is like, nah, you're beautiful. Yeah. He's just like, it's just so like great and sweet. And you're like, this, you have this little magical moment, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and this movie's filled with that. I also love the other, uh, the Asian guy in the convenience store that they end up holding up and he has the coolest talking heads like uh sleeveless shirt on. oh yeah i tried to look that up on ebay last night i'm like can i find that it's like it was modeled after like an asteroids video game or something or oh that's awesome it's like a uh, i couldn't find that specific one but i did find a lot of vintage talking head shirts and they're really not that expensive yeah um, did you see the other shirt it's funny because uh I, I, speaking of looking at things on you know, shirts online, um, I was watching it. The guy who comes up to him with the Pepto Bismol um, and gives him the whole like speech, like it's better to be like a live dog than a dead lion. Yeah. The guy's wearing a T-shirt, like I can't love you, or I, I stopped loving you after you ate my dog. Mm -hmm. I, I it's uh, I'm paraphrasing. I was like, that shirt's so awesome. What does that mean? I looked it up, and someone's making it online, and it's just they just call it Jonathan Demi T-shirt. Awesome. So I'm like, I really want this shirt. That's um, so cool. It's like again, that, that was another one of those things where that guy was just some local guy that he was just, you know, they cast. And then the guy, you know, he asked on the demi, like, oh, you know, can I just say something? You know, just ask a question or whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure. Like, don't tell me, just tell Jeff. And he just came up with that line. The uh, one where, yeah, it's better to be a, a live dog than a dead lion. And then Jeff Daniels loved it so much. He's like, what the hell? Like, where do you find these people? And then he used that line. It comes back later in the movie. It does. Um, but it's just a, such a great, like, thing where you're just, like, constantly populating this movie with... And then also when they um, are driving around and they pick up the hitchhikers, and I tried to figure out who this person was. I figured it was, like, a musician, but it's... Uh, 
the credit is just Texas Kid, and it's this, like, old black cowboy, and he has, like, the dopest outfit on. He's, like, with his family, and they're, like, all hitchhiking, and then they all, like, are seeing, uh, you know, Wild Thing, like, in the car, and they're, like, who the hell is this guy? Mm-hmm. The Texas Kid. Texas Kid. Yeah. I Also, another little cameo, the mom and da- dad's restaurant, fucking Charles Napier plays the son. Yeah, that's right. He's the, yeah, he's the irate chef. He chases him down the the street, and he has one of the best so one of the best deaths, if you can say, of all time <laughs> in Silence of the Lambs. When uh, yeah, Anthony Hopkins gives to him, he's like, no, 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 and it's just like that total like exploitation death, and you're like, I can't believe that that made it into this movie. It's like Charles <laughs> Napier just like making shit happen. I don't yep. know. He's always going to be I near and dear to my heart. He's you know, if I can't be Russ Meyer, I'd be Charles Napier. <laughs> Uh, what a great career what a great career i mean yeah he he has one of the best scenes in fear and loathing in las vegas um yeah he always plays the bad in like all the action movies or the police sergeant that i grew up watching uh yeah he's just fantastic another thing that this movie reminds me of is how you were saying like you know the the great road trip movie it's a good how much flavor there is with everything but it's not really like high society in any way it's just like convenience stores and like cheap motels and like small churches or whatever it kind of feels like a more um flavorful john waters movie speaking of cameos well yeah speaking of yeah you have yeah john waters in there uh and john sales as well as the the motorcycle cop Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean you have like I feel like they could make they could like when they go to Peach's house. I feel like she uh-huh. could have lived next door to like the fish paws <laughs> from polyester. Exactly, where you're like, oh, this is like that neighborhood where it's like these. She'd be a great neighbor for them too because I love Peach's uh, Melanie Griffith's mom because she's like so sweet. I mean, you would think, and I guess because this movie is just full of kind of surprising characters is when you first kind of meet her and you kind of see the world she's in, you kind of assume that she might be kind of simple or, you know, like pretty naive, but she's the one when they're doing dishes, she's like, Oh, you have a wife and you have kids. And you know, like she, she knows what's going on. She's like, Oh yeah. Like Audrey Lulu's real name. You know, she's, you know, she's crazy. She's, you know, got these wild things. She's just used to it. And she's just, so sweet and accepting and she'll play along. Yeah. I don't know. So and I think if she did live next to fish paws, then, you know, when, you know, they're having all of the, uh, the screaming fights out in the, out in the back and, you know, the foot stompers going around, like she could handle it. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta say the, the outfit that Melanie Griffith makes Jeff Daniels buy before they go, uh, to visit peaches, her mother. I want that oh, it- suit with that tie so bad. Yeah, that is when he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, get that suit. Like, it just, <laughs> it's like I would wear that to every wedding, any function like that uh, yeah. that calls for it. Like, it's just booyah. Like, yeah, that no, is. I, I don't even know what you call that that material. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like shark skin, but it's also got that kind of like linen-y thing to it. And it's that really pretty blue. And that yellow tie is so so like, cool. Great. It's cool because he has the suspenders, but they, I like they picked white suspenders with the shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they kind of like blend in. I don't know. It's like it's like tastefully flashy. Yeah. And Does it's that cool make sense? when they're like, 
Yeah, exactly. I like it. Um, it's just loud enough for me where I'm like, yeah, here I am. But it's not too over the top where you don't look like... Because that's the thing. When it comes to like wearing loud kind of t-shirts and stuff like I do in the summer, I'm, I'm, it's like a very... Uh, like fine line to be walking from like with me and my stature or whatever, looking like a total douchebag is, <laughs> is a comparative just like, Oh, I just like wild and crazy colors. Like I'm just like, Oh, whatever. So yeah, that yeah. suit I think would be the perfect thing. I remember I wore that, uh, that tiger Hawaiian shirt with a suit jacket, that, that red one that I own with a suit jacket yeah. and pants to a wedding once. Uh, and I was walking down the hall, and like one of the groomsmen was like, "Oh, there goes that guy in his cool shirt." And I'm like, "Okay, too much. This shirt was too much." But I, feel, I disagree. I feel like Jeff Daniels was just the right amount. <laughs> oh yeah, no, um, he's so great. Yeah, and that's yeah, that wonderful scene in that shop is so great. I yeah. just love those ladies, and knowing that the the moms is really sweet. It's so too. cool uh, when they. It's cool how this movie rolls through where it's like, all right, um, I'm picking you up. And you're like, why would Melanie Griffith, is he gonna, is she going to rob him when she takes the handcuffs out and handcuffs him to the bed at first? And it's like, oh, no, they have sex. It's like, okay, well, then why is she dragging him around like the square? And it's like, oh, okay, they're going to visit their mom. And it's just like, why are they just like randomly visiting them? And then it creeps you onto their 10-year high school reunion. It's like, oh, it's like she's yeah. dragging this guy to this thing to pretend that they're married and she has a normal life with children and all that stuff. I'm like, it's it's cool how you slowly figure out why what her motives are. Yeah. Um, and it really helps push the story along in a way where you're like, I'm curious, like, where else is this going to go? And that's when you were saying, like, at the beginning of the podcast, the movie shifts tones as soon as motherfucking Ray Liotta gets in the building. Yeah. It's funny. There's a really cool scene that is it's so perfect uh where you know they're they're at the reunion and they're kind of like mingling he realizes that his co-worker like his wife is you know went to the school and they're all there and um and they're dancing well that's another thing too so in this movie some of the extras because there's so many great extras they got these like great people just to come and they're like really flashy dresses and there's this really wonderful scene where, you know, these people can also fucking dance really well. And Jeff Daniels is kind of like imitating their dance. And it's just this like goofy, playful like scene that I think is, it's just all the great things about like having all these like really interesting people around and how they're just like bringing so much into this movie and keeping it from being like a stale Hollywood film. Yeah. Um, but there's this one scene and uh, it's like, you know, the, the band is playing and the uh the color of the lights shifts and everything goes blue and then the feelies go into one of their songs and they just finished a cover and they're going to like i can't remember the name of the song but it's one of those a little bit more menacing and the entire shift in the the tone changes because it's right before ray Liotta comes and then things take a really like dark turn um both for this movie but then also uh for the following podcast we're going to do I think uh, where things are progressively going to get darker. <laughs> yes. And nobody plays crazy with a stare like Ray Liotta. Like he oh, yeah. looks like he would skin you alive. Um, I've been saving this story. I might have told you the first time we saw it. But one time my dad's like really, really good friend, Dickie Peterson, who's like not really um, he's a hothead. I'll just put it that way. Uh, he once got into a screaming match with Ray Liotta at a gas station. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Ray Liotta was like, 
um, this was in Palmdale, so he must have been shooting somewhere around Palmdale. And there's a gas station in on Rancho Vista Boulevard, just like a Chevron or whatever. And uh, my dad's friend Dickie was waiting because there's like kind of a line for gas. So he's just waiting with his like truck, like a little bit behind. And then as the person's pulling out, because his tank is filled, it's like, all right, Dickie's turn. And then he like starts to scoot in, and fucking Ray Liotta cuts him off in his Porsche with the top down, <laughs> and just fucking starts pumping his own gas because it's California, it's not Oregon. And uh, I guess Dickie got out and was like, "What the fuck?" And like he's my my dad's friend is short, but Ray Liotta is also short, so it's finally like they're I guess screaming at each other from eye to eye, and. <laughs> Ray Liotta's just like, what? And then, like, Dickie's like, I don't give a fuck who you are. Like, fuck you in your car. And, like, they just, like, went at it or whatever for, like, ever. The entire time he filled his tank. And I was like... Oh, my God. I would. I wasn't That's... there. I wasn't there. <laughs> okay. But I would have paid... I'm sure everybody... This was before, like, smartphones oh. and iPhones and stuff. But, holy shit, TMZ would have been all over that in a heartbeat. It would have been... Yeah. It would have been great. I would love to see Ray Liotta get into an argument with anybody. Exactly. So I'm thinking... With that right there, for him to do a dick move like, fuck you, I'm next, like, whatever, I'm like, Ray Liotta is this guy. That's why he's so good at it. Oh, where, yeah. Where he's just, like, dangerous and also, like, entitled and then just wild. He's he wild. He is something wild. all of those elements. Like, there's that scene coming up later, because, I mean, you kind of get, he has this menacing thing to it, but he's, you can see he has this kind of charismatic thing about him so you can see why women are attracted to him like again like he's not like my type at all but there is this attractive and partly because you know his you know his look his persona is so like kind of complete and so kind of sexualized anyhow but you know he is kind of like really charismatic so you can see why you know lulu was with him before um as you realize that you know it's her ex um but then he just is able to progressively get like scarier and scarier. But there's that scene, the one where I think he's the most terrifying, even though actually the one when they go on this long drive, they end up like things progressively get more fucked up. Like they, they're at another convenience store and they get in a big argument. Um, uh, Lulu and uh, Ray Liotta, whose name character's name is Ray appropriately. Yeah, for real. Uh, and, uh, and they end up like ditching the other the other girl whatever they go end up robbing another convenience store the one with the guy who had the the dope t-shirt um it's all on the cameras but then he takes them to a the coolest <laughs> like like i don't know trash garbage motel apartment complex where everything is like there's like dumpster fires and then you have uh just mud like and this, bikers. This bikers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's so crazy. And it really has this David Lynch feel all of a sudden where uh, they pull in there. And that place is just already so weird. And they go in. And this is the second. Like the first motel they go into is so dope and 50s looking. Anyhow, it's so amazing. And this one also, like the furniture, the wallpaper, the velvet paintings on the wall. It's like there's like a leopard print chair. Everything's so cool and menacing. But you're even seeing like Jeff Daniels, he's wearing that outfit. It's covered in blood. And then she's wearing her like whatever, like cute little dress. And there's Ray, Le Ray Liotta, who also looks awesome. And you're like, this is kind of the only thing that should be happening in this room. If you lived there, I'm like, this is this is, should be how things should be. Like, 
everyone's wearing like really awesome clothes and it's covered in blood. Yeah, and then he's just like banging on the wall because his neighbors are yelling at him for yelling at them, and he's screaming back, and it's oh, just yeah. nothing but the tension in the air. But he has those like snow piercing blue eyes that can like see through yeah. your soul. Uh, but everybody, all the leads in this film have piercing blue eyes. It, it's perfect. Yeah, it's true. He just has that extra, like, the eyelash eyeliner thing going on. Yeah, he's like, definitely wearing so yeah, He's definitely wearing eyeliner or something. I noticed that, too. I'm like, what is he? It's crazy. Or mascara. Just, yeah, or he just has, like, it. crazy eyelashes. It just, like, just makes his eyes pop. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, not to jump ahead, but the, uh, I guess kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Because they end up getting a big fight, and Lulu realizes that, you know, uh, that Charlie, Jeff Daniels' character, isn't actually married. His wife left him and took the kids and whatever. And so she kind of, like, you know, tells him to fuck off, even though she's been lying like crazy this whole time. I like how that, that bums her out. Like, oh, you're not married? Fuck. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, but she's crazy. That's That seems like kind of – well, it's funny. This movie, you know, I think I, I always see weird, like, connections – um, cause in some ways she kind of reminds me of Holly Golightly from Breakfast at Tiffany's and he's kind of like George Papard, especially when the part where she sees him like, you know, doing the, the, the petty, uh, thievery, you know, it's kind of like the Breakfast at Tiffany's thing where they end up going and like robbing the, the convenience store or they, you know, like whatever the five and dime. But, uh, that whole part reminds me of the Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant movie Indiscreet where, they're having an affair, but secretly he's not married. But then she's into him because she thinks he is. And then when she finds out he's not married, then she gets really pissed off. Um, same same deal. Um, it's another great movie. But yeah, that, that seemed like, I'm like, oh, it's like indiscreet. Yeah. Um, I didn't know. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah. But, but I do love that, though, because you're like, she's lying like crazy about everything. Her name, her life, what she's doing, what's going on. Like, um, yeah, she doesn't, you know give him the straight with anything. Um, but then when she finds out his deal, then it's just like, she's so bummed. It's just like, she's just like, I don't even know you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, so then he ends up like taking off and he goes and, you know, gets the car and he ends up kind of following them around, but they end up going to this other, like, like cute little motel that also has like really colorful people everywhere. And he ends up, this is like, yeah, when he like is changing his clothes again, uh, this movie also, I mean, this whole series, um, with desperately seeking Susan, this movie for sure. And then even after hours, uh, the way costumes work, um, with people's thing with desperately seeking Susan, you have, you know, the jacket and you have like all of the elements where, you know, when like Roberta, you know, T- you know, buys the jacket and fetishizes, then that becomes part of her new persona and what leads her on her, her journey of whatever, changing herself. Uh, this movie, Charlie does the same thing where uh, all of his uh, clothing choices, you know, keep progressively changing as he's kind of like shedding these layers of his skin to find his true self whatever you know what i mean and then also in after hours you have a, a similar thing uh which will be next week's episode but there uh you know everything pivots you know once griffin dunn switches from the white shirt to the black shirt then everything like starts unraveling um i just love that that element that detail of uh using wardrobe and costume to tell a story this movie also has tons of it because obviously melanie griffith's character uh and her costume changes 
um, also show her different personalities and different names. And um, even even with the style of automobile, because when Ray asks Jeff, or he's like, "Yeah, hey, what kind of car do you drive?" He's like, oh, "I got a Ford wagon." He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah Lulu's gonna love that or whatever." But then <laughs> by the time we see her at the end of the movie, and she's just like. You know, well, let's do the. You know, let's obviously it's like they're gonna get together, or whatever. They look over at the car, and she's driving like a, a Woody, and you're like, yeah. oh, she's driving like the original wagon. Like that's funny. Um, yeah, but she got the cool one. Well, exactly. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's neither here nor there. Uh, um, exactly. Uh, but yes, that's when he like stakes them out, and then there's uh yeah, he's just like camped out across the street. You know, at this you know, this black church and there's all this other business and he gets, you know, the new outfit and with, uh, the dude. But then, uh, there's this whole thing where she tries to escape and Ray Liotta's like catching her, whatever. But then he's also like putting the make on this like 16 year old girl who's working at the like, <laughs> yes, you know, Jesus. the pool, like gift shop. And that's crazy. It ends up paying off later when, um, they all end up at another really cool restaurant. It's this Western restaurant. Um, and it's Ray Liotta and, and Lulu. And they're kind of hanging out there. And then Jeff Daniels comes in and he's just like, like, all right, like, you know, we're taking off. Like, and he basically lays out everything as far as, uh, you know, like these cops kind of come in and sit down. And he's, you know, because Ray Liotta, he's a convict. He's got like, uh, you know, he's left the the state he was in, and you know, he has a whole laundry list of, of things against him. And he's like, "I'll go over there and you know, talk, you know, tell the cops, whatever. Uh, you'll be done." But he also takes his wallet, and then he does the thing where, you know, he's like, "I'm going to pay for this check," but he ends up stiffing him again and leaving it, um, leaving for him. So Ray Liotta's stuck there, yeah, and he can't leave, and he's just like drinking the beers. But then it's like the girl comes, and he's like, "Thank God," and that's what gets him out. Yeah, uh, but I love that's such a cool premise too. It is cool. I to touch on the the restaurant just for a moment. My sister's first job was at this place called Texas Cattle Company, and it uh -huh. was it was like a replica of this place because I used to go there all the time. They their menus were printed on cactuses, just like those ones were. Um, they had bottomless popcorn that they just kept refilling at your table, so that was a little different. I love it. But the aesthetic was pretty much the same. And they even had um, on top, this is what was awesome for me because my sister's much older than I am. So, like, I was a kid, she was a teenager. And uh, they had a giant, like, train track set on, almost near the ceiling. And the train would constantly be, like, just rolling by or whatever. It was like <laughs> Tex Mex. So I was like, wow, this is crazy. It. They're, like, filming a Texas cattle company right now. But with Ray Liotta being, when he gets, like, supercharged, it's just that kind of, like, like crazy energy that he has where he's terrifying. Yeah. When he like lifts, when he like steals the car, right. Uh, that little wagon or whatever. And he picks up that Gumby that he sits on and he's like, ha ha ha. And he like throws it out the window <laughs> and it's not like overacting. He's just like manic. And oh, yeah, that's just how he's well, even when he's talking geared. to Daniels after he robs him and he's smiling when he's like, Oh, you think you're cute right now? And it's just like, there's a fire in his eyes. And even though he's like smiling and laughing, ha ha. It's like, that's the most terrifying person ever. Yeah, when they'd all when you'd always see him too, it'd be like, "Hey, Charlie!" Like it was always like a, it yeah. was never like he never lost his temper in that way where he's 
Like, I'm going to fucking kill you. He just, like, looks at him like, okay, all right, you want to play like that? Like, kind of thing. You're like, ugh, that's so much His so much scarier. Yeah, creepy, like, friendliness is way more terrifying. And what a great way to play it, too. I mean, I think that's kind of a Ray Liotta element, something he just has. But I think there's a lot of ways you could have played that character or if another actor could have played that character that, you know, would have just been a little more boring. But I think the fact that he plays that character so terrifying and he is so terrifying, I think that... Uh, also elevates this movie because it's just like it it makes the stakes seem so much crazier especially as things get progressively more violent and and nuts well it has you need the ray liotta yeah and also has you because you have to have ray liotta i mean all these actors are so essential in their role it's it, yeah i can't imagine it working with other people i can a little bit with melanie griffith's role maybe but jeff jeff daniels is his own thing but like Ray Liotta it's like I can't see anybody else doing it because you have to be like that crazy like you got to know you got to tell the audience like all right this guy's up to no good but you don't want to scare off Jeff Daniels you want him to get in the car with you and go grab a nightcap somewhere and then also be friendly enough to the guy where you're kind of like you know uh you know T- telling your, him personal details about your life, even though you know you just met, and then also you know that that is your current whatever's ex, and uh-huh. he pro and Jeff is a smart guy in the movie, like he's obviously like going to be the VP of some boring job, so like he can put things together, but he's still like just pouring his heart out to this guy in a way until he gets a little too crass in the parking lot. And he's like, "How is she in bed?" He's like, "There's no call for that language," kind of thing. But otherwise, I love that scene. I think that that's such a great scene between them. Me too, and yeah, that really makes you go like, "Fuck yeah, Jeff!" Like, way to stand your ground. Like, oh, I'm not talking that nonsense with you. That's some, that's you know, that's cool. He's a gentleman. It's uh, yeah, yeah, chivalrous as fuck. So, with Ray's whole performance and how he can like swindle like those like teenagers into like loving him and. I don't know. It's just, yeah, his charisma uh, is undeniable. It's a thing, too, I think, also being, and, you know, maybe I'm sure everyone could, but I think there's that thing where being an adult and you see that character because, you know, he is that type of guy that, yeah, when you're a teenager, you're like, yeah, that guy's cool. Like, you know, and you're like, as an adult, you see that guy and you're like, God, what a fucking loser. But you see that he has that charismatic element to him that you like that makes him dangerous that makes him that guy that you you know you wouldn't want your daughter to date or you know like that that classic bad boy he's like oh fuck mm-hmm. and the fact that he's kind of dressed up like a, a kind of like a bizarro 50s bad boy it, yeah it, his outfits are great those has boots, to be a choice the, those yeah. fucking black boots with like the silver tips like they're pointed mm-hmm. he's got his like you know undershirt t-shirt tucked into his like tight little jeans. beaded belt yeah exactly like i'm like oh that's a yeah he he looks like somebody straight out of twin peaks in a way like he'd be uh just some evil son of a bitch on that show exactly i mean he yeah he, you could totally plug him and that weird place he lives in into like Twin Peaks. And yeah, like Laura Palmer totally would have gone there and whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're totally of the same. Um, but yeah, so they end up like, I mean, it's, it's complicated. They end up getting Lulu and uh, Charlie get into a fight. She tries kicking him out and she ditches the gun from the robbery. And, you know, they, they make it back to the city 
and then you know so does Ray Liotta. He ends up like going to Lulu's apartment, um, which is also like just such a cool like crazy eighties uh, East Village apartment. And uh, and he ends up calling like in the phone booth. Uh, the, he also like the operator at, like or in the phone book or whatever. He ends up finding Charlie's address, um, and ends up like tracking them back to, to Charlie's place. And that's when you get the final battle yeah, for good and evil. It, and that battle is something else because when Ray comes in and her, him and Lulu or Audrey or whatever you want to call it, like are just going at it and being crazy. If I was Jeff Daniels at this point, I would have been like, all right, both of you out. I don't fucking care. I just don't. Yeah. Like it was fun, everyone, whatever. But like, if you're trying to like murder me or like fuck my shit up, just get, I don't, she's all yours, but yeah. hey, good on Jeff, you know, like, uh, just going, going for the gusto there. Yeah. And, uh, that's when you also need his physicality. So that's where the, um, whole thing with Kevin Klein would have kind of gotten bogus. It's like Kevin Klein's locked up to that, uh, to the pipe. And then, you know, he tries uh, yeah. to break out. Like, I feel like with Jeff Daniels, you're like, he's a big enough guy. He can, he can, he can force himself out of that. And then also yeah. kind of get down with Ray and what have you. But I like how they, you know, they're violent, but it's not too violent where it's like, what is this movie now? Because Ray Liotta does die, but you don't see him die. He has that very yeah. cool callback to the first time you see him where he like runs his fingers through his hair and kind of like stares off. It's like the exact same shot, only this time he's got the blood all over his hand from touching his stomach that Jeff accidentally yeah. stabbed him with. And the way that he dies is like kind of perfect. It's kind of like, uh, uh, not spoiler, but a sneak preview. Uh, the, this week's Patreon is going to be on the John Wick trilogy. So if you don't subscribe to our Patreon, you probably should, especially if you like John Wick. Uh, how John Wick gets away without killing a woman in number two, where she's just like, oh, like, oh, well, I'm just going to die mm -hmm. a proud death, and she commits suicide, and then he shoots her after she's dead. And it's like, oh, what a great way to do that in the story so you don't have anybody turn on John for killing a female. Or, like, yeah, whatever totally. it is. So with this movie, Jeff stabs him to death, yes, but on accident, right? So it's okay. Well, yeah, that's the thing. is They, they do kind of cheat that a little bit, so he will remain more sympathetic, where... You know, he's holding the knife, and it's Ray that runs into it. You know exactly, um, which you know works both ways. Like I, I, I can, I can take it both ways. I, you know, still see it as uh, Charlie killing Ray, um, but you know, I, I see for the concessions that you know, they, you know, you don't want to end this movie like wondering if you should be rooting for a murderer. But you know, like Ray is terrifying, and. Like, Ray would have killed the fuck out of him. Exactly. So. If, first of all, that's a B and E. So, like, if you're breaking and entering onto somebody's property, all bets are off. Like, you can yeah. go to town on that person. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I wish a motherfucker would. Actually, I don't. Mm -hmm. I'm about to have a child. I do not want any of that shit. <laughs> like, you can have whatever yeah. you want. I do not want any home invasions. If, but if you want to no. do it now, before I have my kid, go for it. And then we'll, we'll get down. But uh, otherwise... <laughs> I'm a, you have like two days. You have yeah. You have like less than a hundred hours to to make this happen. <laughs> That's what's nuts too, is because I keep staring at my phone because we're like really. I mean, to get personal for for a second, we're I don't feel like I've talked about this at all really on the podcast, but I'm like 
going to I'm my wife is going to have a baby any moment now so I like keep looking at my phone in case she goes into labor while we're doing this episode it's that real like I do that when I'm at work now I always uh, take a bag with me wherever I go or it has like a change of clothes toiletries iPad uh, just like little stuff where it's just like you know because if she goes into labor it's not like one of those things where with labor, people want you to come in after your contractions are like within five minutes of each other. Her pregnancy is kind of not like that, so it's like we have to immediately go to the hospital kind of thing. So it's like at any moment's notice, it's like let's go. So I'm just ready. It, it kind of makes everything that I'm doing way more exciting because I feel like this is the like this might be the last podcast that I record without <laughs> a child. And the next time you yeah. hear me, I might completely sound different. I might sound like a dad. I don't know. Um, will the will the will cheeseburgers taste the same? Will the will the sky be different? I don't know. Like I know. Uh, everything. It's nuts finding out about this kind of stuff because now I'm like talking to my own dad about like things. Like, do you remember anything about when mom was pregnant with me and like all the shit? And he's just like, kind of give me all the the scoop on his deal, but then also saying like, it's so you don't you have no idea <laughs> like how. It's, oh, yeah. All of a sudden, it's just not about you anymore. And it's not like that's a bad thing, but it's like there's this, I don't know. It's He, he put it in good words, and, and now I can't articulate it, but you're just like, everything's going to be different, I think, by the next time people listen to uh, our next podcast. And you'll know why, because I will have <laughs> a newborn at home, and I won't, I just won't sleep anymore. I will never sleep yeah. again. <laughs> You may be part of the sleepless society. Exactly. It's like, I already work two jobs. We already do the podcast. We already do the Patreon. I also do like other little stupid little video things. It's like, I don't sleep anyway. So I can't even imagine with a child what it's really (laughs) going to be like. Um, And that's truly something wild. Boom! Brought it all back around. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Sorry. Went off on a tangent there. but No. um, Love it. So, yeah. Ray's dead. Whatever. Ray's so dead. (laughs) And then... You know, yeah, he goes to his job, and he's just like, fucking quit. And I'm like, Yeah, he quits his job. What? But, okay, whatever. Yeah. He's like, he wants he wants another life. And this is also, like, the, the theme that carries on from Desperately Seeking Susan, where you have the whole thing where, you know, Roberta kind of is Susan, and then she kind of regains who she really is when she realizes that, yeah, she doesn't want to go back to be with the spa king, you know? She, uh... Yeah, she she wants to have this new exciting life in the city with Aiden Quinn, and it's kind of the same deal here, where um, you know, in both case, in this case, a little bit more, and it's hard to say. I think uh, with Roberta in Desperately Seeking Susan, she's kind of finding an avenue to be weird. In this movie, you almost feel like with Charlie that he kind of had some of that in him, but it's kind of like it took the abrasiveness of these situations and his like situation with Lola to kind of like scratch past the surface and to find, uh, this other element that's kind of goofy and fun in him, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think after that, like after, you know, he scratched off the surface values that he had. And there's even that point, you know, right before Ray Liotta breaks in where she asks him, she's like, you know, how do you feel now, now that you know how the other half lives? And she's like, the other half of you. True. And that's part of it where it's like, you know, A, on the one hand, he has seen how the other half lives in a way, and like his interactions with all these people, all of these people who are working blue-collar jobs, and they are, 
you know, like living their own life, uh, however different it is, though for all these people, they all seem to have like, you know, some life of meaning and value. Um, and, you know, it could be, yeah, like the, the people, you know, he, musicians they pick up on the side of the road or all the, the people in the different diners and restaurants and, you know, whatever, um, as opposed to these kind of, you know, artificial lives of the people that, you know, like you said, the, his coworker you meet and, you know, and his like really sad kind of crestfallen wife who's pregnant, you know, like th those people don't seem like they have any kind of life. They can only kind of look through out of the fishbowl and try to see other people living. And then it's like Charlie's made it outside of the fishbowl and he's able to like swim in the ocean. He doesn't want to go back in the fishbowl now. Yeah. Uh, even if it, it's more secure. Um, and I don't know. I think that's kind of the, the great message in this, you know, or the you know thing, that, I don't know, not to get too heavy, but you know, like the, the overarching point. Yeah. Uh, well put. No, that's, yeah, that's, I love that. that's, and I love when movie. he goes back to go to try to find Lulu too, because, uh, you know, he can't find her and, you know, she's obviously kind of crazy anyhow. And he goes back to like where her apartment is. And there's that other, like that great, that, that woman who moved into the apartment, uh, you know, she's like, oh, it must be the other person. Well, what was she paying? I think the landlord's screwing me. Yeah. Um, and then he thinks he sees her. And, and then he goes back to the cafe that, where it all began. And, uh, and then he gets called out by, as, as he leaves, by, I can't think of her name. It's like Sister, uh, oh, man, I don't know, the reggae artist. And she's the, you know, comes out and finds him. And she's like, hey, you didn't pay your bill. He's like, no, I left the money on there, you know. And then you see... Lulu, Audrey, like she shows up, but she has like a new kind of vintage look. It's like kind of a, you know, a 80s version of a 30s, 40s <laughs> look. And uh, she's a big wide brimmed hat. White gloves. And then, yeah. And then she has the money. And so then, you know, they end up kicking off. They get in the, the woody and, and leave. And then, yeah, then you have the woman kind of rapping or, or you know, whatever, singing the the end credits her, her, her version of wild thing yeah and that's something wild and this series is something else it's a what a what a turn to go from the mm -hmm. franco files to this but you know something like acid westerns or uh italian crime or whatever it is like yeah this is like on its own level i you know i feel like this genre i don't know i don't know what you would call it um i'm sure it's something easy but people usually think of like John Hughes movies from the eighties or Animal House from the late seventies, like you know John Landis, John Hughes stuff like that. But there are things in that genre, or at least in, in that era, that are just so much better. <laughs> or yeah, it just have more substance and just more heart, and it's just a lot more fun. Um, yeah, not as rapey, not as racist. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. It, it 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 ages really well. The actors that are usually involved in these things are more interesting, at least now. When you look back at their whole career arc, you're like, wow, they were making good decisions way back when. Yeah, totally. Um, and this series is great. And the fact that we're going to conclude it next week with After Hours, I mean, come on. We're, we're ending Which it with Scorsese. It's really funny, too, um, because it was funny. I was watching on the disc some of the interviews, and... Uh, the author of the the script, it's funny, he was kind of an interesting person. He's actually from here. He's from Portland. Um, 
but he ended up like becoming a model and he lived in New York for a long time. But he was saying when he wrote the script, uh, you know, they were like, well, who, you know, who do you see directing this? And he was like, well, either Martin Scorsese or Jonathan Demme, uh, cause he liked Melvin and Howard. And, but Scorsese, uh, wasn't available because he was busy making after hours. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> and the other thing is also really funny too, are, um, another similarity between these two movies is the fact that, uh, when Jonathan Demme made this, he, um, was still kind of reeling from his, he made stop making sense. But right before that, uh, he had been working on this kind of big budget movie called Swing Shift with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell that, uh, ended up being taken away from him. And it was a huge, uh, like crushing creative experience where he didn't even know if he wanted to direct anymore and he had such a horrible time. And he, when he came to this, uh, you know, he had such a great time and he said it was so much easier and it was obviously something he could make very personal. Um, it was, you know, much smaller. And he said that it kind of helped, you know, recharge his mojo. And he, you know, then got, uh, you know, he was able to continue making movies because yeah. of that, or, you know, he, you know, it reignited his interest in the career. And the same thing happened with Martin Scorsese because Martin Scorsese, uh, when he was making After Hours, at that point in his career, like he'd had like kind of a series of flops. I mean, uh, New York, Breaking New Bowl York, King of Comedy. Well, it, it wasn't, but the King of Comedy was a, a, you know, was not a success. Uh, I mean, creatively, it's a masterpiece, and it's now, you know, considered one of his great films. Uh, but at the time, it didn't really do much. People were kind of, you know, didn't go see it. Um, and then he was trying to get to the Last Temptation of Christ, uh, uh, you know, to go, and then that all fell apart. Uh, so he was really down in the dumps and he, he just didn't know if he'd be able to make movies anymore. And so then Scorsese, you know, worked with, uh, you know, a much smaller budget than he was used to and with a new kind of, uh, creative people. And he was working very fast and, and loose, um, similar to the way that Jonathan Demme made this film. Um, and both of these two films, I think, uh, do show like the best elements of both directors. And I, you know, in Corsese's case, I always kind of wish that he could, uh, even as an experiment, you know, work kind of fast and loose and do something uh, like this. And, you know, uh, <laughs> they're kind of also young-ish person's movies. So mm -hmm. maybe you can't really do that when you're in your 70s. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So all three, well, I don't know about the third one yet. But um, so far, the first two films, Desperately Seeking Susan and... Something Wild are both available on Amazon Prime for free. I'm sure you've seen them both by now if you're listening to this podcast. We're an hour in. It's like, come on. We just ruined everything. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if After Hours is uh, Amazon Prime, but it was recently, I want to feel like. And they're all Criterion releases as well? Well, not yet. Well, Desperately Seeking Susan isn't Criterion. It, yeah, it's available streaming. After Hours, actually, apparently Criterion is going to be putting out um, – but it hasn't come out yet, but it's just in the rumor mill that they are working Oh, out. okay. Um, but yeah, but uh, Something Wild is actually available. Definitely Criterion, yes. Um, yeah, and it's great. Um, yeah, there's some really cool interviews on the disc, so it, it is worth owning. I mean, for me, especially because it's like I, I love this movie and I enjoy going back to watch it. But yeah, it's available for streaming on Amazon. Yeah, this is cool. The series is fun, too, because it's fun to show people. Like, I've just shown my wife these first two movies, but... I feel like, you know, if I ever have, like, a friend over that's even half into movies, I'd be like, oh, something wild. We should watch this. It's a good time. And Desperately cool. Seeking Susan, if Renee's friends are over that, you know, 
This is a good one to put on. Sometimes it's hard. You can't be like, have you seen How to Seduce a Virgin? <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, not, exactly. Not gonna help. It's not gonna work as much as well, you so want it to. Of it, I think, in you know, how some of the reasons, I mean, I do really like these movies a lot. It's the fact that they are like, they have a, a cool sensibility. There is, there are layers that are kind of cool and exciting and interesting in the movies, but then they are working in like generally mainstream movies. Uh, you know, they, they kind of follow some sort of, uh, and there are people who hate these movies too, obviously, uh, like any movie, but I think, uh, you know, they, they aren't, you know, downbeat or they're not, um, like bummers. Like some movies you really like, you're like, Oh, this is really great. But then there are these, you know, scenes where there's something about it or the ending or this, you know, things that would turn off a lot of other audiences. Um, these kind of like are really in that sweet spot where they're just like really delightful and just fun to watch. Uh, but you don't feel like you're being punished with something totally idiotic. So. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> All right. That's it. We're going to, we're done here, but Hey, done. if you want to keep on listening, we've got a Patreon and we are covering the John Wick trilogy. I know they just announced a couple days ago that they will be making a number four in two, and yeah. it's going to be released in 2021. But we've got the first three on uh, the other side of the rainbow or whatever. Love it. Cool. Let's keep it purely casual. Purely casual. Bye.